The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We're going to be in Genesis 50 today, and so turn in your copy of God's Word there. If you don't have a copy of of God's Word, just raise your hand. Uh, Belinda has some extra copies. Maybe you forgot a Bible. Um, Maybe you have a different translation. We use the ESV here, and you want to be in the same one that I'll be using. Just stick up your hand. She's got that. She's also got sermon notes. Um, If you need a pen or something like that, just stick your hand up, and one of our ushers will be delighted to help you in... uh, in that way. So Genesis 50. You know, when I planned our first year preaching calendar almost two years ago now, which is kind of crazy to think as is in the training center and preparing to plant here and uh, mapping out what our first year as a church plant would look like, I had no idea the impact that this section of scripture would have in our church. Really, I found myself praying just, Lord, forgive my unbelief. <laughs> His word is alive and active, so what else should we uh, expect? But little did I know that this section in Genesis would have the impact it would have in our life. And, you know, I've shared with uh, some of you, just as, uh, you know, as we've been going through, but uh, the statistics show that in church planting, the first summer after launch is the most difficult uh, time. You know, people go on vacation, and so attendance drops, and when attendance drops, then, you know, giving drops, and people just kind of take a break, go into spiritual hibernation over summer, and when you mix all of those things together, a young church plant, that can be the death blow, but not here. Not here. God has seen all those stats, and he said, I'm going to pour out my blessing, and this summer has been marked by not just numerical and financial growth, but most importantly, spiritual growth. Praise the Lord for that, right? Amen? Amen. Amen. That's right. That's right. We can, you know, here's something even as we're growing, like, you know, I love sermon response. So if you have an amen, if there's something, please, you know, like, it it helps. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It will always be well received there. But, you know, every week that we've been working our way through this last part of Genesis, um, I've been hearing just how timely it has been in uh, your life. And I've been, I get emails that uh, are telling me about how relationships have been restored, how your faith has been deepened, how the gospel has become more precious to you. And that, beloved, is God at work doing the work that only he can do in your life. And today, today I believe that as we close this series, he has just a little bit more work to do. This is the season finale And just like any good season finale, it's double the time. And so buckle up. It's going to be about two hours as uh, we look at this here. So if you have lunch plans, text them right now that you're going to be a little... Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. kidding. Amen. That's right. (laughs) I'm just teasing. But it is the season finale. Jacob, the father, has now died as we, uh, as we get here, and after a long life that he's had of joys and sorrows, of fear and faith, of running away and standing firm. He's had some parenting fails, and he's had some parenting wins. His kids now, as we've seen their life in this section, they've, they've been really something else, haven't they? Their lives early on marked by jealousy, hatred, betrayal, massive family secret that went on for decades with lying and then separation. Until God did what only he can do by orchestrating events that these brothers would one day be reunited 
and paving the way for reconciliation, forgiveness to happen in their life. And so chapter 50 now, chapter 50 ties up all the loose ends and brings this narrative to a conclusion. If you are just joining us today, all those messages are on our podcast and uh, online if you want to catch up and get to this. But this is the series finale. And what we have seen kind of faintly in each chapter, some a bit more clearly, is now crystal clear in this chapter that God is sovereign and good. And so here's our theme today. We've been writing this down each time, each week, each chapter. Here's our theme. Hold fast to God's goodness. Hold fast to God's goodness. That's in your, in your notes there. Maybe you've been writing it down in your Bibles each week just to remind yourself of these things. But what you may also have noticed, hopefully you did before you sat down and you looked at your seat, is we've made these bookmarks for you. Please take them. And this has those themes that we've seen each and every week. And so even though we're bringing this series to a close... I hope that this section of scripture is one of those that you turn back to time and time and time again. As you're walking through uh, your life, that this comes, you come back to this and this gives you hope and joy and peace and conviction and confidence as you look through each of these chapters. And so the big idea is on this. So you can stick it in your Bible and go back to it. If you want multiple, because maybe you have a car Bible, you have a church Bible, all these things. I don't know how you, you can take multiple. There's plenty on the seats and then some at the connection table. But I've got it here for you. Today, as we wrap up, hold fast to God's goodness. Now with all that, you ready to read chapter 50? All right, look at Genesis 50 with me and follow along as I read God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Genesis 50 says this, when Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him up went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Underline that, circle that, mark that in your Bibles. Verse 21, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of the land, out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis 50 ties up all the loose ends. There's much here that we can't even go into all the, 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 the depths of this morning. But the overriding theme and application for us is this. Hold fast to God's goodness. Chapter 50 verse 20 is really the theme of the entire book of Genesis. And some would say even the entire Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible what man meant for evil, God meant it for good. But in terms of what we're talking about today and the application that we see from this, we are to hold fast to God's goodness. Here's your first point. When you grieve. When you grieve. Look at the first verse of chapter 50. And let's go a little bit deeper here. What, what we're picking up here now is Jacob the father, or Israel, his covenant name, they, he deeply loved his son Joseph. We've seen this all throughout the narrative. It began when Jacob gave Joseph the multicolored coat as an expression of his love and setting him apart that he loved this great son. We know that, but this was a love that was reciprocated. You see this in verse 1? Joseph, he falls on his father, father's face. He had just passed away. If you go into chapter 49, you'll see that. And he kisses him. And then he begins to make the funeral arrangements. And what's really astonishing in these verses here is just how much the Egyptians also loved Jacob. He'd only been there about 17 years at this point. When he came, the whole uh, reunion, when Joseph was revealed to the brothers that he was now the second most powerful person in all the known world at that time and through the grain and the famine and all that, those scenarios and they go back and then Jacob makes the journey with everything and goes to the land of Goshen. He's now there the last 17 years of his life and just in that span of time, the end of his life, a very elderly, frail man, the Egyptians Love this man, and they mourn for him 70 days. That's two months, y'all. This is a very great 
profound lamentation for a man who is not even their own. What's astonishing here is Pharaoh gives the permission to take Jacob back to Canaan, back to the promised land, and he sends this massive entourage. Did you see that in verse 7, how it, how it describes it all? All the servants of Pharaoh, this is verse 7, go up. The elders of his household. These aren't just like nobodies. This is the, the important ones, the wise ones, the servants, the elders, all the elders of the whole land of Egypt. All the household of Joseph, his brothers. Verse 9, calls, it was a very great company. Yeah, no kidding, right? This massive entourage is now leaving Egypt and making the journey to the promised land. What's interesting here is a little foreshadowing because uh, in the future, God's people are going to take another exodus with an even more massive entourage as they are leaving this time in, a, in very different circumstances in the exodus. But they arrive and look what happens there in verse 10. The locals take notice, don't they? This is a big deal. It's headline news. All these people come, they stop at the threshing floor, and then they spend another week mourning in the land of Egypt. After two months of it in Egypt, now they're in Canaan, and they spend another seven days. One week, verse 10 says, and the Canaanites, everybody's seeing this, uh, whoa, this is a grievous mourning. So much so that they renamed the place. They put a historical marker at that place because of the, of the funeral that was there. It's like the, they, they rename it, it's the, it's the the place of mourning for the Egyptians. You know how we refer to places sometimes like that, like, yeah, that's where the accident happened, or that's where that happened. And so it's just kind of the thing. They rename it here, just beyond the Jordan, and then the funeral goes and takes its place. It happens just as they ask. But this is a, this is a massive entourage. How many of y'all were alive in 1997? Many of you. I remember there's a very significant event that happened in August of 1997, and it's when Princess Diana, the Princess of Wales, died. You remember that? I remember it very vividly. I was 12. My family was visiting my grandparents down in Effingham, Illinois, and we were glued to the TV as reports of this were coming in. The accident, and then uh, a week later, then the funeral. It just, that event dominated national and international news. It was on for weeks. You know, her funeral was viewed by an estimated 2.5 billion people. 2.5 billion people tuned in to watch her funeral. Just to put that into perspective, how many people do you think watch the Super Bowl annually? Any guesses? See, it's around usually 110 million. 110 million on average. This year is a little bit down. Um, but 110 million typically tune in to watch the Super Bowl. Princess Diana's funeral in 1997, 21 years ago, 2.5 billion people watched it. The majority, the vast majority of people who had never met her, had knew nothing about her, only knew her reputation and what, it, uh, what this death had meant and the tragedy behind it. And now they're... In Jacob's death, there wasn't even 2.5 billion people alive that had even existed at that time. But the international impact is the same. Jacob here is a beloved man. He has this reputation for all his chicanery and all the things that happened in his life. This takes notice, and it is a profound event. But something else is happening in the midst of the hoopla of Jacob's funeral. Do you know what it is? 
Who is back in the promised land after almost 40 years of absence? Joseph. Joseph is now back in the promised land. He doesn't stay there. We're told that he goes back, doesn't he? He's back, but this can be easily overlooked. Joseph is now returning to his homeland. He left as a slave, hated by his brothers at the age of 17, and now he returns as this noble dignitary, reunited with his brothers, probably in his early 60s at this point. Vastly different from the way he left. And he is now experiencing the joy of the covenant that God had made with his people to be in the promised land with his offspring, blessed by the Egyptian nations and the Canaanites around him as they fulfilled Jacob's last wish to be returned and to be buried in the cave at Machpelah with his ancestors. This is a glorious, glorious kind of fulfillment, if you will, not a full fulfillment, but a joy-filled experience of a part of the covenant. And what keeps them afloat during this grief? What keeps them afloat here? Yes, they mourn for a long time, but it is, I would submit to you, what keeps Joseph and his family afloat even after their beloved father has died? It is this, it's an abiding belief in the goodness of God. An abiding belief in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. See, grief is a normal, regular experience of our lives, isn't it? Sin is in this world, and because of sin, death is also in this world. And those two things, sin and death, bring all kinds of grief to our life. Sadness and sorrow, pain, trial, suffering, all of those things are a normal part of our experience. It's not something to, uh, to, to just suppress or to run from. Because we who are beloved by God have something that keeps us afloat. It's God's goodness. God's goodness, see, it works like a life jacket, keeping us afloat even when we feel like we're drowning. We throw this on, and it keeps us afloat in the pool of our grief. And what do we do as we feel like we're drowning in the midst of those experiences? We buckle it up. We tighten the buckles. And we allow these things to keep us afloat even when we can't see through the tears that are filling the pool. We, let, we just let it hold us and it will keep us above, our heads above water. We hold fast to God's goodness even when we grieve. But the story doesn't end here, does it? Where does Joseph go? He has to leave the promised land. He has to go back and he will live the rest of his days where? Back in Egypt. He's going to live the rest of his days back in Egypt. And as they get there, notice what happens in verse 15. This whole issue that's been at play now for 40 years rises again to the surface. And so they must hold fast to God's goodness when they forgive. We hold fast to God's goodness even when we forgive. Now, the brothers have been reunited for about 20 years at this point. The famine hit, they went to Egypt, all of those things from the early chapters or the, you know, in the 40s in Genesis here. Those things hit and they're reunited while they're searching for food and God orchestrating this reunion. And we learned a lot in those chapters about what it takes to reunite and to reconcile with people that have hurt us deeply. But it is not till now, after their dad has died and they return to Egypt, that their reconciliation is finally achieved. 
So what we see here in verse 15 is that the brothers are afraid that it was dad who was restraining Joseph from revenge. They know that he is a very powerful man that has the, the, all the forces of Egypt at his disposal. And so they, it's verse 16, look what they do. They send a message to Joseph. It's like one of, a text or an email. Yeah? They're too afraid to approach him uh, personally, to ask these things. And so they just kind of send this out. And let me just say this, like in our relationships, don't send texts and emails when you have hard things to say. I'm working on this. I think we all are. It's so easy, but so much gets missed and lost when we just send those things. Say the hard things in person or over the phone. But they send this message, and then through the series, they actually come together, and Joseph does the unthinkable. He does the unthinkable. He forgives them. He provides for them. He speaks kindly to them. And this is in direct contrast to the way in which this whole mess started in chapter 37. See, at the beginning, the brothers, they hated him. Chapter 37. But you compare that to Joseph. What does Joseph do? He forgives them. He forgives them. Look at what uh, verse 19 says. They come. They say, we're we're servants. They're bowing down. They're humble before him. Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's instructive for us. Am I in the place of God? No, you don't need to fear. Of course I forgive you. Brothers hated him. He forgives. What else? The brothers, they take everything from him, including his coat, his very livelihood. But what does Joseph do? He provides everything. He provides everything. Look at verse 21. Do not fear. I will provide for you. And we know all along since their uh, reunion, he has given them everything. The homes in which they live, the land in which they farm, the livestock which they brought, and all the livestock of Egypt, Joseph has given to you. They've been provided for, and they have lived really in the lab of luxury these last 20 years. And last, we see in chapter 37, that they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. This whole mess started. They're so jealous. They're so envious. They can't even speak peacefully. Not one nice thing can they say to their younger brother. And now Moses writing this in great irony and great contrast. Look at the end of verse 21. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you see the irony? Do you see the juxtaposition here? Do you see the contrast of the way this started and now how it is coming to an end? Joseph speaks kindly, and forgiveness is granted. Reconciliation is finally achieved. You know, I'd submit to you that forgiveness is a lost virtue in America. It's a lost virtue here in our society, and it is the only way forward in all of our discussions, all of our attempts at reconciliation, whether they be familial reconciliation, relational reconciliation, uh, racial reconciliation, or any other relationship that has been broken by sin. If forgiveness is not a part of the equation, it will not happen. Otherwise, we just make unrealistic demands of restitution that are made that will never be met, that could never be met. But forgiveness is the bridge, forgiveness that is undergirded by the strength of the conviction that is found in verse 20, the strength of God's sovereign goodness. 
Look at verse 20 here. As I mentioned as I was reading it, write that down. Memorize it. Star it. Highlight it. Whatever you do to mark up your Bible so you remember verses, it is this verse. This is one of those bedrock convictions that you, beloved, must have in your life. strength of God's sovereign plan and that he is working out for good because he is a God of goodness. He is a God of love. And who are we to stand in God's place and withhold forgiveness when we have been forgiven the greatest debt, haven't we? We've been forgiven the greatest debt, our offense against God. And you know what? Like our experiences here, when we are forgiving when we, uh, when we are believing in the sovereignty of God's goodness, his, our life is like a pool. It's like a pool of water. I have a little kiddie pool here. This is our life. And our experiences are like cups of water. Sometimes they're given to us by our own doing. Sometimes because we don't have any choice. Jacob surely was handed, or Joseph rather, was handed uh, many cups that were uh, not necessarily ones that he liked. But the experiences of our life are like cups of water given to us and poured into the pool of God's sovereignty. Some are really bitter cups. That accident that you had, bitter cup, bitter cup, poured into the sovereignty of, or the God's pool of sovereignty in our life. The bitter cup of infertility. We didn't necessarily like it. The bitter cup of death. That person died. The person you were close to. Bitter. Bitter cup. Some are maybe not so bitter. Maybe they're the bittersweet ones. The job change. You loved where you lived. You loved your community. You loved your job. But God opened a door for it. You know it's good. You know it's, it's right. But it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Poured in the pool of God's sovereignty. Those things that you don't really know. The time you were betrayed. Joseph was betrayed, wasn't he? Divorce. Whether you want it or not. Whether it's out of your hands. It's irreconcilable. It's a bitter cup. Poured into the pool of God's sovereignty. He working it out. And there's some that aren't so bad. Right? There's good things. All the cups that God has given us. Our spouse. Spouse whom we love, these good things, our kids. Maybe there's a bitterness to it sometimes, a bittersweetness. But I hope you see them in light of children, our gift of the Lord. Our gift of the Lord. Poured into the pool of God's sovereignty. There's other things in Joseph's life that he was given. He was put in prison, wasn't he? He was put in prison. God worked it out. He was falsely accused. Adultery. Potiphar's wife. Joseph is seeing the events of his life, of the decades that have just gone before him in his life in Egypt. And he is saying, God has worked it all for good. You may have meant these things for evil, but God has meant it for good. Joseph believed this. Jesus used the same example. Jesus knew that the events of his life were a part of God's sovereign plan. In John 18... John 18, just as Judas comes, you know, the scene betrays him. And he's about to be arrested and falsely accused and then beaten and killed. And he tells Peter, after Peter takes out his sword and goes chopping people's ears off and all that passage. 
What does John 18 say? John 18 says, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup, the cup that the Father has given me? Just this same scene, read it in Matthew 26 as well, when Peter, or Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, you know, the scene where he's like, he's so anxious. He's, he, he's just such under emotional duress that he's sweating drops of blood. And he's praying to the Father, God, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours. See, the experiences of our life are like these cups these cups that are given to us, some that cause us hurt, some that were meant for evil. But when placed in the pool of God's sovereignty over our lives, he means it for good. And you know what, beloved? Genesis 50, 20 is the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. It is the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. And we know, Romans 8, 28 says, we know this. Not just intellectually, not just in our heads, but the firm, settled conviction of our heart. We know that for those who love God, as believers, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this, beloved, is the beauty of the gospel. Do you love Christ? Have you repented of your sin, placed your faith in Christ and said, I don't know what all this means, but I know that I'm sinful I know that I can't do this. I know that I can't make sense of my life, but you do, Christ. And so we come, we submit ourselves to God and, and to Christ and his lordship in our life. We repent and we believe this is the beauty of the gospel. And for those who love God, those whom he calls according to his purpose, those whom he is working out and orchestrating all these cups in our life, pouring them into the pool of our life, his sovereignty over our life, and he is working it out for your good, beloved. All these events in Joseph's life are just like that. He lives the rest of his days in Egypt, watching his kids and his grandkids grow up. The chapter closes out. He spends another 50 or so years there, dying at 110. And you know what? He lives those final 50 years with this as the anthem of his life. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Is that your anthem? Is that your anthem? Is that the deep abiding conviction of your heart? See, everything in your life falls into this category. When we come to embrace it, everything changes. See, God's sovereignty over our life, the particulars of your life and the very uh, events of this world, when we come to love that and embrace it, it gives us more joy and purpose and strength. I was reading this, uh, this weekend, actually, this great uh, blog on Desiring God, author Dane Ortland. He's giving this little overview of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards' life. Jonathan Edward, maybe more than any other modern theologian, has brought to life the, the sweetness of the sovereignty of God. And he himself endured great adversity throughout his life of children dying. He himself died at a very young age. He was after he spent 25 years as a pastor in a church, beloved, faithfully preaching God's word. And then with one vote over the, the nature really of communion and whether unbelievers could take communion, almost the entire membership, 230 out of 250 some people in his life, voted him out of his church. But here's what this author has to say. 
He says, in light of the adversity Jonathan Edward faced, I want to ask this question. What for Jonathan Edwards was the result of this following equation? God's sovereignty plus my pain equals what? Divine coldness? Fatalism? No, here is the answer for Edwards of that equation. God's sovereignty plus my pain equals, here's the secret to sitting through the catastrophic rejection with a happiness that is out of reach of the circumstances. He says this, Edwards had happily nestled into the conviction. Don't you love that picture here? He nestled into it like a child in his parents' lap. He nestled into the conviction that the entire universe and all of human history, down to the particular flutter angle of a falling leaf or the footfall of an ant outside his home, they were the inexorable work outworking of a heavenly rule and plan so comprehensive that they know no ceiling and boundaries. But why is this not mere fate? Because fate is impersonal. Design's divine sovereignty is personal. The person controlling all things is love himself. The very existence of the universe is, according to Edwards, the overflow of joyous love within the Trinity, a love too great to be restricted to God himself, superabounding, creating a world so that humans can be swept up into this love, into this love of God. That is the one providentially ruling all matters great and small. So when ordinary faithfulness earned him the rejection of his church members instead of their embrace, Edwards did not go into psychological meltdown. He already had a deeper embrace, held by one whom Edwards knew ordered all things. And when 230 people voted to fire him, Edwards knew that it was God dismissing him from Northampton Church. Why get bitter at all the people? Why get bitter at the surrounding circumstances? A greater mind was ordering his life. God's love was working through their hate. And why? Why? Well, here's a physical reason. To get him to Stockbridge, where he'd write several of the most enduring treatises at the height of his intellectual power. After he was there, he was freed up to write these great works that have endured for a long time. That's one reason why. But here's ultimate, to bring the fulfillment God's deeper purposes for his life and his own purposes. And a thousand other reasons we won't know until heaven Beloved, see, this is what's at work in your life. When we have a deep-seated conviction that God is working all things for his good, that he is sovereign over all of these things, the very truths that we sang in that song, the very truths that we see Joseph holding to here, the very truths that govern Jesus' life, when those are in our life, we can come to embrace it and we can actually enjoy the water. And we can jump in and swim around. We know there's a deep end that we don't fully understand. But that's why he gave us the life jacket of God's goodness that keeps us floating even when we don't understand it. But beloved, this is a joy, this thing to be embraced. And you know, as we began, I was rejoicing in the gracious work that God has been doing in our hearts through Genesis, right? Just as we began. God has been at work, and many of you have shared your stories with me. Many of you have seen what God is doing, is bringing reconciliation, as he's bringing you greater joy, as he's transforming your life. And so as we close this message, as we close this series, as we have seen God's sovereignty on display, as we have seen that he is working it for our good, I want to give us, as we close, a unique opportunity to close our worship today. 
to respond to the Lord in worship. You know, I've said that our experiences are like these cups of water. Jesus said it. He said our experiences are like these cups of water. And maybe there's been that thing in your life, the thing that God is working out, the circumstance, the job, the relationship, the, uh, the issue with your family, whatever it may be, that event from the past or the one that you're in the middle of right now. And God has brought, maybe it's something that God has just brought to your mind this morning that you are going through. But it's an event, it's a circumstance that through a cup you need to acknowledge before the Lord. You need to believe it more deeply in your heart and confess it before one another that God meant it for good. God means this for my good. I don't know what's happening. I don't know maybe what the the Spirit is bringing to your mind right now. Maybe you're reluctant. Maybe you're reluctant to acknowledge that and believe that and confess it because it's hard. And you don't know what the road ahead is going to mean. And you've laid awake at night thinking about it. Maybe you've just never believed this fundamental truth. But maybe this morning you need to respond to the Lord and say, you know what? No, this, this thing, this God, you are working it for good. Or maybe you're on the other side of it. Maybe you've worked through something and you didn't know and now you're on the other side of it and you can see God's goodness in it. But maybe you've just never worshiped and never told the Lord, God, I see your hand in that. Forgive me for maybe my unbelief in the midst of it, but now I see your goodness. And I want to tell you this morning, God, I acknowledge that you meant it for good. You meant it for good. This marriage, that job, this move, this home, this whatever it may be, that relationship, you're working it for good. You mean this for good. Today is different. And so in just a moment, uh, Aaron and the worship team are going to come up, but I want to give you a chance to respond uniquely today. We don't do this every week, so if you're a guest with us, um, this is a unique thing as we bring this series to a close, but I do want to give you a chance to respond. And so maybe you've been wondering on either side of me why these buckets are and these cups and all this stuff. Maybe some of the kids have been dipping out of it and getting drinks. I don't know. I don't think so. But there are some cups there with some Sharpies and a big blue bucket of water. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray, and I want you to be praying, and whatever that thing that, that the Spirit's put on your mind, that you've been convicted by this morning, that event in your life that you want to acknowledge before the Lord, you want to believe it in your heart, you want to confess it before men, nobody's going to like make you, you're not going to say anything, but I just want to give you an opportunity, Aaron's going to play for a little bit, and then we're going to go into our final song, but there's on either side, so just kind of, you can come up, there's multiple stations Grab a cup and just write that thing on the, on the cup. Maybe it's multiple things. So just as an act, whatever God is saying, just write it on there. Dip it in the water, take it, just pour it over here. Just symbolic as a way of saying, God, you mean this for good. It's in the pool of your sovereignty. I embrace it. I acknowledge it. I believe it. I confess it. I'm here. I see your hand in this. Even if you can't, maybe this is your way to say, God, help me. To see it. But whatever it is, this is what we are going to do now as you worship, as you respond to the Lord. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray now.